Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. Every 10 years, the government sets out to count every person living in the United States. This time around, the pandemic is complicating matters. But even before the novel coronavirus hit, experts warned the 2020 census was in trouble. Fear caused by a failed White House proposal to add a question about citizenship coupled with distrust of government could result in an undercount. As Jake Steinberg reports, that will affect money and power in the country for a decade. On April 1, 1940, 133 people were living at Catalina Federal Honor Camp. Most were prisoners, ranging in age from 18 to 65. They were there to provide prison labor to build Catalina Highway up Mount Lemmon. Building a highway is a big job. It takes many men. We know this because census records become public after 72 years. Before that, no federal agency besides the U.S. Census Bureau can see them. The waiting period is meant to protect people's privacy and make them more comfortable with sharing their information with the government. But that hasn't always been the case. During World War II, the government suspended the law that keeps census records private. The military used the 1940 census to find out where Japanese people were living and send them to internment camps. Forty-five Japanese Americans would end up interned at the camp on Mount Lemmon. Eight decades and eight censuses later, experts are warning today's political climate could keep non-citizens from responding. There still is now the general sense of fear of information being shared with outside agencies um, other than the Bureau. Lizette Escobedo does census outreach for the National Association of Latino Elected and Appointed Officials, a nonprofit that works to increase Latino participation in American politics. She points to the attempt by Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross to add a question about citizenship to the 2020 census. A U.S. Supreme Court decision ended the effort last June, but a survey done in February by Escobedo's organization found as many as half of Latinos still believe there is a citizenship question. Three quarters were concerned the Trump administration would use the census data against Latinos or immigrants. An undercount of Latinos could lead to them being underrepresented in government. And Escobedo says that's not all. It would also mean less resources for our communities for things like education, health care, um, making sure that we have um, good transportation infrastructure, making sure we have housing. The federal government uses census data to determine how to spend money. In 2017, over 300 federal programs totaling $1.5 trillion were guided by census data. That's according to an analysis from George Washington University. Arizona received nearly $30 billion. That money funds everything from a state's entire Medicare bill to a grant for a community garden. Every person missed by the census could cost the state $3,000 every year according to the Arizona Complete Count Committee, a division of the governor's office. In the most conservative of estimates, you're looking at a $62 million loss with a 1% undercount. Alec Thompson is the director of the Complete Count Committee. With 56% of Arizona households responding as of Wednesday, the state is only slightly behind the national average. But response rates are not equal around the state. The Census Bureau has had to delay delivering forms to many tribal communities due to the coronavirus pandemic. You have a county like Apache, um, which is mostly tribal sovereign nation, where there hasn't been any ability to actually respond. So they're at like 3%. 
urban Pima County leads the state in census response, but has its own disparities. Areas with higher concentrations of poverty and more Latinos have lower response rates than whiter, more affluent areas. But it's those poorer communities that have the most to gain from a complete census count. Andrea Foster is the Title I coordinator for the Sunnyside Unified School District. Title I funds go to schools with high concentrations of students in poverty, a formula reliant on census data. They're going to give the funding to us based on a number that they believe are in our area. When we get the money and we divvy it up by the number of students, if there are more students, there's less money to serve them. Sunnyside uses its over $7 million of Title I funding to pay for student counselors and a full day of kindergarten. The state of Arizona only funds half the day. Some districts charge the parents for the other half of kinder. And in a community like ours, that's not an option. We can't, you know, we can't do that to our families. For all the headwinds facing the census this year, there is one big change in its favor. The 2020 census is the first that can be completed online. Lizette Escobedo says that gives her hope during the pandemic. We're trying to remind folks that while they're staying at home, um, and they're seeing all of these things that they really do, that they really feel powerless about, right? There is one thing that they have power over, and that's taking seven minutes to fill out the census. She says officials are making decisions about the pandemic response based on census data. If ever there was a moment that demonstrated why the census is important, she says it's this one. In some cases, it could save lives. For The Buzz, I'm Jake Steinberg. So we know what the repercussions of an undercount are, but what's keeping those communities from filling out the census? Emma Gibson reports for many, it's an issue of trust. There are many groups throughout the United States that are undercounted for one reason or another. They could be students, minority communities, or people experiencing homelessness. Ana Karina Rodriguez is with the National Association of Latino Elected and Appointed Officials. Rodriguez says when she's talking about the census in her community, she stresses some of the programs and infrastructure that benefit from an accurate count, like Medicaid, Medicare, food stamps, or roads. But she says many in the Latino community, even legal residents, have reservations about sharing their information. There are residents who have still not filled out the census because they don't feel like they're still accepted in this country, and yet they're on the pathway to citizenship. She says this fear stems in part from anti-immigrant state laws and leaders. She put the last census in context. You know, in 2010, we were fighting SB 1070. It was the show me your papers law, you know, it was to racially discriminate brown people. And so rightfully so, our community has that fear of not being accepted, of not being wanted, and therefore it's easier to not be seen. Gabriela Casares-Kelly says the idea of, quote, not being seen exists in her community too, but it's a little bit different. She's a member of the Thon Otham Nation and a candidate for Pima County Recorder. There's been a tumultuous and at times raw history between indigenous peoples and the federal government, including forced relocations and boarding schools. There's also a thing that happens, which I like to refer to as statistical genocide, where we no longer exist on paper. And I think that it provides those who are in decision-making spaces the opportunity to 
shortchange our communities. American Indians and Alaska Natives living on reservations were undercounted by almost 5% in the last census, among the highest of any group. She says for Indigenous peoples to fill out the census, they need to understand why it's important and trust it won't hurt them in the future. But there are other barriers too. Kasaris Kelly says when it comes to Thana Otham living within the nation, people may not speak English or have a physical address since many roads don't have names and houses don't have numbers. And people may be worried to claim loved ones sleeping on their couches. You don't have to be a citizen. You don't have to be on a lease. If you live there, if you sleep there, six months plus one day, that's where you should be counted on the census. Beth Morrison says that's a widespread fear for people who don't have steady homes. She's the CEO of Our Family Services, a nonprofit in Tucson that assists people experiencing homelessness in southern Arizona. There may be a family that's doubled up in housing, and they're afraid that if they report eight people staying in a two-bedroom apartment, that Department of Child Safety might remove the children, that they'll be kicked out of the apartment. She says caseworkers have to build enough trust with clients before they can even broach the topic of the census. With the shift to an online questionnaire this year, internet access can be a challenge for many communities. But Morrison says library computer labs can help. Morrison says at the end of the day, it's important to remember how the census benefits the community she serves and others. For us, a lot of the housing dollars we receive are government funds, whether they're direct federal dollars or federal dollars that get passed through the state or the county or the city. Getting everyone to fill out the census is a way to ensure that those dollars keep going to the communities that need them. For The Buzz, I'm Emma Gibson. One group that can be hard to count is university students. Every decade, the University of Arizona leads an effort to have all their students counted as Tucson residents. But as Vanessa Ontiveros reports, the decision to close campus after spring break due to the coronavirus pandemic complicated this year's census count. More than 35,000 students attend the University of Arizona's main campus, according to university enrollment data. That's the population of a small town inside the Tucson city limits. Julie Katzel is the Senior Director of Local Government and Community Relations for the UA. She works with the Census Bureau to ensure UA students are accurately counted. According to Katzel, the university was originally going to launch its main census outreach efforts in the second half of the spring semester, once students returned to campus from spring break. After students did not return from spring break, we had to pivot to an entirely electronic and digital outreach campaign. We focus primarily on email and social media. Students attending the UA come from anywhere across the US or even across the world. However, Katzel says students filling out the census should report the residents where, under normal circumstances, they spend the majority of their time. For most UA students, that means using a Tucson address. They are asking students to complete the questionnaire as if the pandemic had not occurred at all. Census data is used for all kinds of things, including allocating federal funding for student-related services like Pell Grants and mental health care. Katzel says it's important students know it is not too late to complete the census. They can do a self-response right now, which means they can go online and complete the census. 
students who lived in on-campus dormitories during the first half of the spring semester will automatically be counted by the university. Students who lived off-campus can fill out the census online at my2020census.gov. For The Buzz, I'm Vanessa Ontiveros. Census data is used for all kinds of things. One of those is how many representatives a state gets to send to Washington, based on its population. Arizona gained a new congressional seat after the 2010 census. The state is expected to gain another after the 2020 census, meaning more representation in Congress and more attention from national political parties. We talked with Yuri Radinsky at the Nonpartisan Law and Policy Institute, the Brennan Center, about census-driven redistricting and congressional representation. Well, census data is the backbone of all redistricting, and so it's incredibly important to have an accurate and complete count, particularly in the communities that tend to be harder to count populations, and a lot of these are rural communities, low-income communities, and communities of color. We hear a lot about undercounted populations, as you just mentioned. Are there examples where we know there's been an undercount and as a result a state lost a congressional seat or did not gain a congressional seat and we know that it was because of an undercount? Well, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, the Census Bureau generally does a, a fairly good job of, of following up. And there are a couple of different metrics that the Census Bureau uh, uses in order to identify undercounts. Uh, I am not aware of, of any that have risen to the level of uh, costing one state a congressional district or, or uh, resulting in a windfall or another one, but there certainly have been disputes uh, about how people are counted uh, and, and uh, states claiming that, that districts have been in the fold as a result. What information on the census is used generally for drawing a congressional district? Well, the, the Census Bureau in, in the redistricting file that, that states receive produces a, a couple of data points. Um, primarily, it's the total population count and then breaking down uh, that population into various uh, racial groups. There are always accusations of gerrymandering. When it comes to redistricting, what is the legal definition of gerrymandering? The definition that we use is when, uh, and there are different kinds of gerrymandering, which is, I think, an important point to remember. And so most commonly, people are talking about partisan gerrymandering, though uh, districts that are drawn to disadvantage uh, certain racial groups, particularly minority communities, uh, is another form of gerrymandering, which uses a completely different standard or rather set of standards. Uh, but in the partisan gerrymandering context, the, the definition that we tend to use is where one party tries to use an advantage in the redistricting process, like a temporary uh, majority in a legislature, uh, to draw districts that entrench its own power. And what we mean by that is draw districts in a way uh, that make it impossible for voters uh, to elect a different majority. We're talking with Yuri Radinsky from the Brennan Center about redistricting. Arizona has an independent redistricting commission. Does that make Arizona unique amongst the states? 
Well, Arizona has really been a leader in independent redistricting, and a number of other states have followed its lead uh, since uh, 2000 when Arizona adopted its model. Arizona's commission was challenged in the U.S. Supreme Court when it came to congressional redistricting. Is that the final word on states using commissions? The Supreme Court case from 2015 that upheld uh, the use of independent redistricting to draw congressional districts should be the, the final word on that question. Uh, and though it was a, a close decision, it was a 5-4 split, uh, what we've seen since then, including uh, in, in recent opinions um, discussing partisan gerrymandering, was that the court was pointing to independent redistricting uh, that was enacted by citizen uh, initiative as the right solution for partisan gerrymandering. And, and that was uh, a decision where the majority said that the courts would not step in uh, and police partisan gerrymandering. Going back a bit to the census and redistricting, the Census Bureau has asked because of the COVID-19 pandemic to push some timelines back. When it comes to redistricting, how much of a problem will that cause with elections going forward? Well, it has the potential to uh, cause issues in a large number of states. Thankfully for Arizona, the timing uh, provisions that are written into the state's constitution are flexible enough to give the commission enough time to do its job. And so in, in terms of will the commission have less time? Absolutely. Like every single other redistricting process, uh, the map drawing will have to uh, be compressed and, and happen on a much tighter schedule. But uh, there aren't the issues that certain states are facing where they're scrambling, thinking about how their laws need to be changed in order to be able to get the process done. Uh, in Arizona, that's, that, that shouldn't be an issue. When it comes to legal challenges, and as we've said, maps are always challenged in the court. There's no such thing as a very smooth uh, redistricting uh, for any state. Do, do you find that independent redistricting commissions like Arizona's get challenged more often than, for example, I know Florida uses the legislature to draw up the districts. Does one get challenged more than others? And does one survive challenges more than others? Well, I think the number of challenges has more to do with the nature of the state, uh, specifically in states like Arizona that are uh, either swing states or trending towards swing state status. The stakes are a lot higher. Uh, and also in states where um, the demographics are, are fairly complicated, where there are large uh, uh, communities of color populations and, and, and there are very complex uh, racial dynamics um, that intersect with politics, that's when things get complicated and that's often when, when um, court challenges get filed. The thing about the outcome of, of these challenges, and I, and I really do think this is key, uh, independent redistricting commissions tend to perform a lot better than uh, maps that are drawn by state legislatures. And so uh, if I were 
looking for a metric to, to gauge what system is best, I wouldn't look to see whether cases are filed. I would look to the outcome of those cases. And uh, based on what we've seen so far, uh, independent commissions perform very well. All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. That was Yuri Radinsky with the Brennan Center for Justice. AZPM reporter Jake Steinberg, who we heard from earlier in the show, has been covering the census and says so far, Arizona's self-response rate is more or less in the middle of the pack when compared with other states. He joined us to talk a bit more about what the pandemic has meant for census field operations. If we weren't living in this world affected by COVID, where should we be in the census process right now? All of the census offices had been closed for what was probably going to be the busiest period for those offices, which is, you know, the entire month of April. Um, They've been closed. They just reopened yesterday in the state. And they're getting started now with um, what they call the, the, the update leave forms, which is sending out these paper forms to rural communities, places that don't have your standard address that are served by P.O. boxes. Um, they weren't able to do that for a month. So in rural areas all over the state, you're seeing much lower response rates than in urban areas. So that's a big lag that we have that they're trying to get caught up on. Last week was also supposed to be the start of the um, non-response follow-up period, which is basically you know, for households that don't respond, don't mail back the form, don't respond online. Uh, a census worker comes to the door and enumerates you that way. So with the COVID pandemic that's been going on, it sounds like the census workers coming to the doors in more urban areas, that's only about a week behind, could be made up. But the rural areas, it sounds like, are the ones that are really getting hit with problems related to the census and the coronavirus. That's accurate. Um, And it's, you know, that on top of those communities being hard to count already and that's due to a number of factors remoteness internet access is being a big factor this year um on on reservations uh native americans were undercounted by i think four percent nationally in the 2010 census and there are a lot of concerns this year about about similar results um within arizona especially on the navajo reservation because of how acute their issues with with the pandemic are right now. How do the census workers work around that? Is there any way they really can? Because so much of it is face-to-face, person-to-person contact for people who did not answer online initially. I mean, right now, the response has been to to delay uh, as much as they can. And the, you know, the dates I give you today could, are subject to change fairly shortly. So originally the non-response follow-up was going to be starting this month going through the end of July. That has now been pushed back to starting in August and going through the end of October. And again, subject to change still depending on the conditions of the pandemic at that time. So you're really seeing the entire process getting pushed back. And that's going to really come to a head because the census has a legal deadline of um, December 31st to deliver the apportionment counts to the president. Uh, And they have asked, the Census Bureau has asked to move that deadline back to the end of April. Uh, And uh, Congress has yet to 
to approve that. So right now they're kind of in a limbo uh, that's going to affect, you know, redistricting and apportionment down the road. Um, the Census Bureau is training people on, you know, appropriate social distance, social distancing, uh, enumeration, masks, of course, are going to be a part of the process. You know, there have been some reports of people who had signed up to be census workers now being reluctant to do that given the pandemic because a lot of census workers tend to be older, right? So a more vulnerable population. Um, because the field enumeration won't start until August, we don't really know how that is going to be affected and whether or not we're going to see that be a big bottleneck for the process. So Jake, if you haven't answered the online form that we were all asked to answer, what are some of the deadlines? When do you need to answer that by before somebody comes to your house and knocks on the door? Originally, the deadline was July 31st. Um, that has been pushed back now to October 31st. So there is a lot larger window uh, than there was previously to self-respond. And a couple of um, you know people trying to get out the count that I've spoken with have descri described a big effort there that they're going to try to launch in the fall now that they have this extra time to get people to respond. Um, I talked to someone with um, the Sunnyside Unified School District who, who who's planning on they're planning on launching a big sort of get out the count outreach to parents around the t beginning of the next school year because a lot of the you know there's a lot of concern about the virus. Um, it's pretty unprecedented to be having a census in the middle of a global pandemic. There is a public health argument to be made for you should fill out your census form online if you can. That way it prevents people from having to walk around um, neighborhoods, you know, potentially spreading it or risk getting infected with it themselves. Um, you know, a lot of census workers tend to be older and um, that puts them at higher risk uh, if they do get COVID. All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. It's a pleasure. That was AZPM reporter Jake Steinberg, and that's The Buzz for this week. You can find all our coronavirus coverage online at news.azpm.org. You can find all our episodes online also at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Vanessa Ontiveros is our production assistant. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. And Duncan Moon is the interim news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.